Well, good morning. Welcome to everybody joining us on site and those who are joining us online here this morning as well. Really glad you're here today because we are kicking off a new series that will take us over the next about six weeks uh, called The DNA of Our Church. Now, the phrase DNA is probably familiar, kind of a familiar term to many of us in terms of its technical definition. Uh, you, you might be like me, you not understand all the science behind it, but you know it's kind of that, that kind of that twisty double helix thing that your genes are made out of. And I don't know, not your genes, like, your, like the, the, the genetic information that determines why you resemble your parents and not your dog. Right? And the genetic information that determines why you're not only human, but also the information that determines why you're uniquely beautiful as a person as well. And when we think about this dual, pur- this dual purpose of DNA with this in mind, we can also use it in a figurative sense. It's used figuratively also to describe the building blocks of an organization. And, and the way that that works is it refers to the what we sometimes refer to as prescriptive characteristics, the the characteristics that all organizations of a certain type will all share the same, as well as the descriptive characteristics, the the characteristics also that make them uniquely beautiful. So you have the prescriptive and the descriptive that come together in the building blocks or the DNA of an organization. And we actually do see this in a church. You know, for example, when we think about a church, there are these timeless, unchanging, God-given, prescriptive characteristics that, that any church, any Bible-believing church should be fully committed to. Things like, like worshiping God, like teaching from the Word of God, fellowshipping amongst the people of God, evangelizing people so they can have a relationship with God, and serving others in the name of God. These timeless, unchanging, God-given, prescriptive characteristics. But there's also, and you may be very familiar with this, there's there's also these descriptive characteristics of how God has uniquely equipped and shaped a body of Christ, a, a church, to fulfill his mission to make disciples where and when he has planted them. See, now... Here at West Meadows, we are fully committed to the prescriptive characteristics. We're fully aware of them and fully committed to the prescriptive characteristics of worship and teaching and fellowship and evangelism and service. But we also value and seek to further understand the unique descriptive characteristics of who our church is as well. And so therefore, when we understand DNA in terms of DNA of our church, we can understand this as the unique values that guide how we will fulfill God's mission in us, among us, and around us. Does that make sense? Perfect. Because here at West Meadows, we have a mission. And the mission is based upon the great commission that God has given to all followers of Christ. And the way that we express that here in our context is to say that we are on mission, inviting people to experience new life with Jesus by living out his grace, truth, and love. And over the past number of years, you've probably seen this phrasing on, on our literature and our website and on, on banners that we have on the platform and throughout the church. You've seen it recently painted on the, on the walls of the foyer. But along with this, you may also have noticed that there are six unique core values that go along with these as well. The core values of countercultural love, of heartfelt hospitality, of encountering Jesus, of vibrant faith, empowering people, and strengthening communities. 
And, and recently, over the last year, the board and the staff have examined these values again and, and thought, you know, in light, of the, in light of the current evolution of the church and, and culture and the community in which we exist, you know, do these still match? And, and we've come to a point to say that, yes, that th- these are still values that we presently have and need to be aspiring towards as we look to fulfill the mission to invite people to experience new life with Jesus Christ. And so over the next six weeks, we want to unpack these together. And so that you become more familiar with these six values. Also, hopefully, it will lead us to the point of having the ability to create fresh expressions of how these might be lived out and therefore allow us to be forward-thinking as we vision towards the future on living things out and being successful and fulfilling the mission that God has given us. And so as we begin... Let me just start by maybe explaining, like, what are we talking about? What do we mean when we say a value? And, and I think we're somewhat familiar with that term as well, because all of us have things in our lives that we value. And whatever we value has this powerful influence on us. You see, so values can be understood as these convictions that reveal our priorities and guide our actions. One example is, is my wedding ring. Every day, every morning I get up and I put my wedding ring on periodically throughout the day, I'll check to make sure that it's, it's still there and I haven't lost. I've done that for, for almost 28 years now. And is it because I value my ring? Well, I do value my ring, but no, it's more so because I value what it symbolizes. I value my marriage and I, I value my wife. And therefore, I do certain things because I value my marriage and I value my wife. Like, for example, on the most basic level, because I value my family and my wife and my marriage, I go home at the end of the day. I don't just sort of wander off like a tomcat and do whatever I want. There's there certain things that I will do. And when I get home, I will care for and communicate and participate in the home with my family. And there are certain things because of this value that I will not do. Maybe you also will be somebody who says, you know, I value my faith. And if you value your faith, that is going to be a motivating factor towards why you do things like come into church on a regular basis. It's going to be why you want to join a life group. It's, it's going to motivate you towards things like tithing and wanting to live your life according to the ways of Jesus Christ. When we value things, they, they drive actions. I came across another story this week of a, of a, of a lady who valued something. And I thought I'd share it with you. I think, it, I think it explains this in a good way. You see, there's this lady who was out hiking on the Olympic National Forest Trail in Washington State. There's this beautiful, beautiful scenic hiking going. And partway through, she needed to use a washroom. And all they have as you can expect, on hiking trails are outhouses. And so, so she goes to use the outhouse, and as is commonly done, she thought, well, this is a good time to check what's on my phone. And she dropped her phone in the hole. Bloop. Now, as I just said, what we value will reveal our priorities and it will guide our actions. Her actions revealed how much she valued her phone. Now, I'm kind of curious, how many people here hold their phone at a lower level of value where they're like, you know what, I'm just going to buy a new one. Who's got a new phone? If you didn't raise your hand, you value your phone enough to go do what she did, because she went fishing. (laughs) At first, she thought, maybe I could just reach my phone, but no luck. And then she thought, oh, I have my dog leash. I could could kind of maybe lasso it and pull it up. But that didn't work. So she thought, well, I could also use my dog leash to tie off as like a lifeline. And then I could lean a little further, and maybe I could reach it. This is the point in the story where there's good news and bad news. Which one do you want? 
You want, the, good, the good news is she found her phone. The, the bad news is the leash broke. <laughs> so, but she was able to call 911 and have firemen come rescue her, which, which I guess is a form of good news as well. Anyway, as we can see from a story like this, values are these convictions, whether they're real or aspirational, that reveal our priorities and they will guide our actions. And starting today, I want to introduce you and maybe for some of us reintroduce you to one of our core values, the value of countercultural love. Countercultural love, where we express this by saying we share God's never-changing love with an ever-changing world. And to help you understand what do we mean by this, I, I want to invite you to turn with me to a story that we find in John chapter 4. And you can follow along with this in the sermon notes on the pew portal, or you can uh, use a pew Bible, and it's found on page 862. And it's found in John chapter 4, and this takes place during the early time in Jesus' ministry, where he's moving between Judea and Jerusalem a few times, kind of making this loop. And as he's doing so, he's gaining popularity with the people, and he's gaining attention from the religious leaders. Uh, The people love him. The people are starting to flock to him. But those in positions of authority are having increased conflict with him. And so as things start to heat up in Jerusalem, he decides that he's going to return north again to Judea. And so we read this beginning in verse 3. It says, so, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go north. He had to go through Samaria to get there. The most direct route, as you can see from the map I have up on the screen, from Jerusalem to Judea is just to head north. It's directly north of Jerusalem. But you had to go through Samaria to get there. And that wasn't the typical route that the Jewish people would often take. You see, what they would typically do is instead of going directly north, which was the obvious quickest route, they would detour east for 25 kilometers over the Jordan River, then head north, and then 25 kilometers back across the Jordan into Judea, completely bypassing Samaria. Why would they do that? They would do it because there was this long history of tension and disassociation between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. You see, they... They had a common ancestry. If you did one of those ancestry DNA tests on on both of these people groups, you find that they had the same forefathers. They were both from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there was a break that happened somewhere along the line. You see, where it took place was centuries earlier when Assyria came in and conquered Israel and carried off a number of the people to exile The vacuum created by some people staying in Israel and some being carried off to exile, they filled in the space with Persians. And the remnant of the Israelites that stayed behind in Israel intermarried with the Persians and other foreigners that moved into the area. And this led to a blending of cultures and a a blending of traditions and a blending of religions. And, And that's what the Sumerians became known as. But the Jewish people didn't often refer to them as Samaritans alone. They they would use derogatory terms sometimes, like calling them half-breeds. There was this incredible tension between them. But Jesus is not one who's known to follow cultural norms. And so he just heads directly north. He bypasses the detour and just goes directly north. And so one day, as he's going through Samaria, around noon, he comes to the Samarian town called Sakar. And he's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty from his journeys, his disciples go off to buy food, and he sits down at a well. And we read this beginning in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? You see, his disciples have gone off to town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, but you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
To Jesus' first century audience, this is already a shocking story. It would be expected for Jesus to barely acknowledge this woman's existence, yet alone speak to her. They're from two completely different worlds, two completely different cultures. They're, they are divided by history. They're divided by religion. They're divided by negative attitudes towards each other's. And if the Pharisees had seen this, oh, man, they're looking for reasons to condemn Jesus, they would have surely condemned him for this encounter. But Jesus was becoming known as one who was countercultural in the way that he viewed people. And so he's not a opposed to just heading straight through Samaria and having a conversation with this woman. And, and he asked her for a drink of water. And she says, how can you ask me for a drink of water? But, but then he flips the question on her in verse 10 when he says this. He says this in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink of water, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to get thirsty and keep coming here to draw water. Uh, clearly, there's a disconnect taking place in the conversation so far. You see, the woman is still thinking about earthly things. She's thinking about the well water she came to retrieve. But Jesus is trying to introduce her to the heavenly water that she can receive. See, she hears this phrase, living water. And she's still thinking of earthly terms. She's thinking of this cold, crystal clear stream that would flow through the region. But she's thinking that... What are you talking about? There's never been one. That's why there's a well. If there was a stream, we wouldn't need the well. There's a well because there's no stream. How can you talk about this living water that would flow through the area? But, but when Jesus is talking about living water, he's talking about something that doesn't eliminate physical thirst, but something that eliminates spiritual thirst, something that leads to eternal life. Now, there's a disconnect here, and this, this lady, she stumbles on the metaphor that's being used here, but the question still hangs in the air. Will she ask Jesus for a drink of living water? And because Jesus already, and this may not be the entire conversation they had, but we can already see that Jesus is acknowledging her genuinely, that he's showing care for her. And because of that, because others haven't done that, because Jesus is doing that, in a way it actually gains him permission to press a little further into her life, as he does in verse 16. Where he says, he told her, he says, well, go and get your husband and then come back. I, I have no husband, she replies. So Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, is that you have had five husbands and the man that you have now is not your husband either. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. <laughs> the point of Jesus' response is not really about the divorces. You see, the divorces were symptomatic of, of a deeper root issue that exists within her life. You see, Jesus, in mentioning this, is not seeking to judge this woman. He's not seeking to judge her life. What he's doing is he's seeking to dredge her life. You know what the word means? To dredge something? If you've ever seen a, 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 a lake or a body of water, it looks, it's just perfectly clear and pristine on the top, but 
But sometimes beneath the surface, there's all sorts of garbage and muck and, and, and just things that people have cast away that sit on the bottom. And in order to actually make the lake clean, they need equipment to come in and, and like dredge the bottom and, and pull up all the stuff that's settled to the bottom that actually keeps it from being clean. I remember when I was a kid, I used to, you used to go to puddles, right? You'd see a puddle that was nice and clean. You'd make your hand like an excavator and, and you'd kind of scoop the mud. As soon as you hit the mud, it would kick up all this muck. But if you want to actually make the puddle clean, if you want to actually make the lake clean, you, you have to go through this phase of, of dredging all the muck out of it, all the garbage out of it. You have to go through this proper process of dredging if you want it to actually be clean. And so Jesus here in this comment is kind of dredging to the surface five failed marriages. Maybe even the fact that she's given up on marriage because the current guy she's with isn't married either. And this relates to something deeper within her. This deeper thirst that, that he sees exists within her. One that she has been trying to address with the wrong kind of guys and the wrong kind of relationship for way too long. A thirst within her that she's been trying to address by going back to the same well. By going back to the same stagnant water that the world offers. And what he's suggesting to her is that she needs to turn and come find living water that only Jesus can offer. But she's not yet able to see him as the source of living water. But she can confirm that he's a prophet. She sees there's something unique about him. And so she's willing to affirm him as a prophet. And this encounter with Jesus is, is something like she's never experienced before. And it's having a deep impact. And if you've ever been in a situation where you're feeling kind of moved and there's this deep impact taking place, sometimes your, 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 your reaction is, is to feel uncomfortable. It's like this is, this is good, but it kind of hurts. And, and so there's a bit of a recoil that happens at times and, and, and to push back. And so because the conversation's getting a little bit uncomfortable, she tries to kind of distract a little bit. And she says, well, I know I'll distract from the conversation by going to some classic divisions, some classic arguments that exist between, between Jews and Samaritans. And so if you keep reading the next few verses, she brings up the, these classic issues of what, do you, what are we told never to talk about? Religion and politics. So that's, that's where she goes. She's like, she's like, sir, you know, we have our teachings and, and you have your teachings. And, and we say we should worship here and you say you should worship there. And, and we say we should worship this way and, and, and you think you should worship that way. And, and sir, I, I don't know if you're a prophet or not, uh, you know, living water or, or not, I, we're just too different. There's just too much water between us. There's, there's too much of a divide between our people. This just isn't going to work, hoping for a conversation to be ended. But it's not the end of the conversation. Because Jesus doesn't see this woman through the same lenses that the world sees her. You see, Jesus' mission, we read about this in Mark chapter 1, Jesus' mission was to come announce the arrival of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God had come near and to call all people to repent and to believe. And, and part of being in the kingdom of God is not related to who your grandpa is. It's not about a style of worship that you lean towards. He's, he's come here to reveal that being part of the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God will reign within people. And as the spirit reigns within people, it will enable worship in spirit. It will enable worship in truth. And as Jesus tries to explain all of this to her, she knows that he's speaking of things that she's heard of in the past that she doesn't fully grasp, but she knows that these have messianic aspects to them. And so she says to him, maybe she's even wondering, Maybe she's even hoping that he could possibly be this Messiah. And she says in verse 25, I, 
I know that the Messiah will come and he'll explain all these things to us. I, I know he'll come and explain these things to us one day. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking with you, I am he. I'm he. And in this moment, her eyes are opened. And this belief begins to set in. And she drops everything. And in verse 28, it says, And then leaving her water jar behind, she just drops everything. The woman went back to town and she said to all of these people, Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this possibly be the Messiah? Bit of an exaggeration. Everything she ever did. But boy, you can feel from that question and that statement that there's this, this hope. This, it's full of longing. It's full of hope. And it's full of this desire for others to come and see and to come and experience exactly what she has experienced. And that's what happens. If you keep reading in verse 42, continuing all the way down, the whole town comes out to see Jesus. And they see for themselves, they hear for themselves, and they believe for themselves. And they invite Jesus to stay there for a few days. And we learn that many people in that region come to be followers of Christ. What a great demonstration of countercultural love shown towards this woman. But also of the ripple effect that loving one person can have. The ripple effect from one person to change an entire community. See, throughout Jesus' ministry, he was criticized for showing concern and, and giving dignity to people that were considered outcasts by the rest of the world. If they were the sick or the poor or, or those who were labeled sinners, they were just made outsiders. And that's how the world saw them. But Jesus had love for all of these people. He had love for all of them. He was, his love was never limited by, by social constraints or by lifestyles or past failures or present burdens. You see, he moved towards these people and because he loved them, it opened doors through which he could walk to share hope and, and to share truth with them. To share with them the truth that there is a more fulfilling way to live life in relationship with him now and for all of eternity. See, Jesus' love was unlike anything else that these people had ever experienced in the world before. And that is because it is countercultural in its nature. And just like so many people in our world, in our neighborhoods, and the people we drive by on the roads and walk past in the streets, the people we work with, we go to school with, people we go to sporting events with, just like so many people in our worlds, this Samaritan woman was just going through the normal daily routines of life. And as she walks to the well that day, alone with her own thoughts, I, I, I can't help but believe that she could never escape the emptiness that she felt inside. Of, of just walking and thinking to herself, five failed marriages on my way to number six, but may, maybe this guy will be different this time. But just feeling so alone and having nobody else around her, because all the other women went to the well during the morning or in the evening when the sun was low and when it was cooler, but, but she thinks to herself, no, I go at noon. I go at noon during the blazing sun because I can avoid the shame. I can, I can avoid the glances, and so I go at noon. But today's different, because today when she gets there, there's this man sitting by the well, and as she gets closer, he, he greets me. And he asked me for a drink of water. And there's something in his words. There's something in his smile and in his, his eyes that just say to me, dear woman, I see you. And it stirred something in me. And the longer we talked, I felt like him saying to me, dear woman, I know you. 
And, and, and then he started speaking about this living water, and I could feel it like he was saying to something deep within me, dear woman, I love you. I see you. I know you. I love you. Words and sentiments that she had not heard or felt from her culture in a long time. She's thinking to herself, I have Jewish cousins who hate me for being religiously and ethnically different. They go out of their way to avoid me. I have a town that has labeled me an immoral outcast, a sinner, and they pay no attention to me. But this man called Jesus, who I've never met before, says, I see you, I know you, and I love you. And it spoke to something deep inside me. You see, she came to retrieve water for her body from a stagnant water well that would temporarily satisfy her. She came to retrieve that water, but instead she received living water that was freely given and refreshes her spirit now and for all eternity. And as new life wells up within her, we see this joy and this desire to worship that flows out of her and demands expression to other people. See, Jesus' love is countercultural. And the type of love that we see in Jesus is the type of love that we want to value and that we do value here at West Meadows. It's, it's the love that we desire to live out as a church community at West Meadows. So much of our world and our culture operates by assigning labels like this woman endured in her life. And we define people by these labels, and, and we know what they are. We, we, we know them from society. We know them from watching the news. There's political labels, and there's religious beliefs, and there's nationalism and socioeconomic issues, and, and people get dropped into these categories. And based upon these categories that get dropped into, that tends to shape how a person perceives the world and how the world perceives them. And quite often, based upon these labels that define people, they, they, they don't bring people together. They, they tend to divide of determining who's in and who's out, who's, who's good and who's bad, who's safe and who's a threat, who's, who do I agree with and who do I disagree with. Now, sometimes these encounters happen. There's these events where we're all brought together for a moment, like, like you go to a sporting event and we're all together there and, and cheering and high-fiving each other and we're all fans, and there's this moment where we feel like we've all come together as fans for something, but then the game ends and we just become strangers again. We become strangers and revert back to the old labels. And we see this in our world. And it plays a big part in the story of Jesus' encounters with this woman. Because Jesus was not supposed to talk to her. He was not supposed to talk to her because she was a woman and he was a man. And that wasn't right. Men don't talk to women. In this culture. She was a sinner and he was a rabbi. They shouldn't communicate. She was a Samaritan. He was a Jew. This should not have happened. These labels play a huge role in this story. And that's why John in verse 9 feels the need to put in a little footnote that says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why do you think John felt the need to include that? His audience of the day knew this. This wasn't a secret. His audience of the day knew this. Why do you think he felt the need to point this out? I think he put it in there because he wanted the people then and people now to understand that Jesus was intentionally not defining her by these labels. He loved her with a countercultural love, where he didn't see her first and foremost by the labels that the world attached to her. He saw her as an image bearer of God. He saw her as a woman in need of God's grace and truth and love. That's what he saw, and that's what he led with. And looking at this phrase, 
I just want to challenge you to consider, how could we apply this to our world and to our culture? Like, rather than saying Jews do not associate with Samaritans, like, how would we fill in the blanks for who does not associate with who? There's some obvious ones. Like, like Oilers flames don't associate with Flames fans, right? West Enders don't associate with those East End people. I don't associate with cat people. No, <laughs> dog people, cat, no, I, I do. I have lots of friends who have cats and I pray for them. But there's, there's dog people and there's cat people, right? But you know, more seriously, then, but then we have these other divisions that happen within our world. There's Protestants and Catholics and, and conservatives and liberals and indigenous and non-indigenous. And we, these, these labels get attached. And are there differences between these people? Of course there are. Uh, of course there's distinctions. And these are sometimes inconsequential and they're sometimes very serious. And sometimes very important to acknowledge. But when we lead with love... When our, when our first step forward is with love like Jesus did, we start to find points of commonality, not points of difference. For example, sometimes overlooked, the common point of commonality between Jesus and this woman that day were that they were thirsty. And they get to share a cup of water. You see, when a person knows that we care about them, then doors open. When somebody knows that they're genuinely cared for, acknowledged, I see you, I I want to know you. I want to know your name. I want to know your story. But when we lead with that, all of a sudden doors open where we can then start to wrestle with the more difficult things. We can start to wrestle with the more challenging things that, you know what? It's not just them that has it. <laughs> it's all of us that have it. Because you know what else is common amongst all people? Not only are we all created in the image of God, but we've all fallen short of God. And we are all in need of God's mercy and grace and his forgiveness and the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. We're all in need of that. You see, countercultural love is one of the core values that we have here at West Meadows. And as you consider how you might be able to live that out in your life within the context of our ministries here, I, I encourage you to, to wrestle with that and to consider what that might look like. And, and as you do so, as, we, as I conclude this message, I, I leave you with a story. That might help you process that. It's a story of a grandfather and his three-year-old daughter who are at the beach. And they see other kids collecting shells, and, and his granddaughter wants to try collecting shells. And so he says, sure. He sits her down on a, on a pile of sand with some shells in it and gives her a bucket. And she, she starts, without any instructions, just start putting shells in the bucket. And as he steps back and observes her, she, she would hold up a shell and scrutinize it for a minute and then, and then place it in her bucket. And the grandfather got curious about what possible criteria could a three-year-old have for determining the quality of shells. And so he went and he peeked in her bucket, and, and there were some shells that looked good, and, and, and there were some that were more defective. Many, many more, in fact, that had these little defects in them. You know, shells that had holes in them, shells that had been worn by the surf and chipped and broken by their journey to the shore. And as he looked at all these, he thought to himself, man, so many of these shells would not have made their way into my bucket. I, I, would, have, I would have leaned towards more of, the, more of the perfect shiny ones because I could display those like on the back of my toilet or something, wherever the shells go. And there remained this degree of mystery to it. But in her innocence, she clearly saw a value deeper than the surface. And as, as I hear that story and I think of it, I, my prayer is that our church would look like that bucket. Not full of perfect shells that all look the same, 
not all shells look the same, but no, all different sizes and shapes and, and backgrounds and experiences with nicks and dings that are worn by the waves of life. Not so that we can be labeled and defined by these things, not so that we can be divided by the nicks and the dings, but so that we can be drawn together by them. Seeking to find common source of love and community and hope in Jesus Christ that he offers, in Jesus who loves all of the shells that are in the bucket. With a love that is not found in this world, because it's not of this world, because it is countercultural to this world. And praise God that he demonstrated this love for us so that we can experience this love, be transformed by this love, and then go forth and invite others to come and experience this love as well. May we be known as a place of countercultural love that honors the truth of God and leads with the love of God as we share his never-changing love with an ever-changing world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example we have, not only in this story, but how you've moved into each of our lives. How we've each experienced your love in different ways, unique ways, in different situations. How, how each of us has been nicked and dinged and worn by the waves of life. And yet, Lord, your presence and your love is the constant amidst all of that. And we just say thank you. We praise you. And I, and I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to, to wrestle with the question, to, to even, even daringly step out and say, Lord, give us opportunity this week to not only reflect and experience that more ourselves, but to invite others to experience that in these days ahead, that they too may come to see that there is incredible grace, truth, and love in Jesus Christ, that there's incredible hope in Jesus, that hope has a name, and that name is Jesus. Amen.